Psalm 45. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In majesty, ride forth victoriously. In the cause of truth, humility, and justice, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let sharp your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your love and righteousness and hate. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From places adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people in your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyree will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All the glorious in, is the princesses within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In an embroidered garment, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. Those who brought to be with her, led with in joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The world the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Kids are invited to kids' church. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. So the words from Psalm 45 at the opening this morning. Um, my heart is stirred by a noble theme. This is a weird psalm in a lot of ways. Now, this is our last Sunday going through the psalms that um, Eugene Peterson had picked for his book, Earth and Altar. So there's 11 psalms in there, and we've walked through each of them. Um, this is the second one he picked that half the people are like, we're not quite sure why this is in the Bible. Thanks for Eugene Peterson picking eccentric psalms. My fault for not reading through all of them as well as I should have at first, um, uh, but better to blame someone else, in my opinion. Um, but uh, this psalm begins even weirdly because it begins with the author. My heart is stirred with a noble theme. Like it, he goes on to describe what would normally make up a psalm, although there aren't many psalms about kings and weddings either. This is a very earthly psalm in some ways. But even at the beginning, he, he sort of announces himself onto the scene, which is not typical for a psalm. And Notable for us, I mean, we, we have this way of, of wanting to talk about our praise as if we're talking about ourselves. Um, I have this thing as a uh, professional liability. I go to lots of weddings and funerals. Um, 
But like there's two different types of people who stand up. One with people who sort of like really want to capture the person who is there. And then the other people who want to process who they are in relation to the person. Um, so you'll see this in bridesmaid speeches um, where they, I don't know why I'm picking up bridesmaids, normally because um, men of honor ones are terrible. Um, they're just funny. Um, so bridesmaids ones have a sentimentality, but sometimes the sentimentality is, this is how I'm so interesting for knowing this person. Um, it's why only this psalm perhaps begins that way. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. And yet, the author, I think, is inviting us into having our hearts stirred by this noble theme of this wedding between this king and this queen um, and the ceremony as he provides it and sort of um, draws them into the future at the end. Um, now, the quote on the back of the bulletin today um, in Latin, for those of you who read Latin, but also in English, only the lover sings from St. Augustine. Only the lover sings. Now, if you stop and think about that for a little bit, um, you can think of all the ways in which only the lover sings. Has anybody seen the movie about a boy with Hugh Grant? Great, this is, okay, so somebody has. Um, the, in that movie, it's about a very... Um, self-protected sort of uh, sheltered man who's single. He divides his days into 30-minute segments and goes around. And oddly, he, he makes all his money because his dad wrote a Christmas song that sort of haunts him throughout the movie. So, like, I think he's in the grocery store in, like, October, and it comes on, and he's like, already, already, um, it's come to this. It also contains one of my favorite lines about children, I believe, where the kid who sort of brings this man out of himself says, do you like children? And he says, on a case-by-case basis. Um, <laughs> thanks be to God. Um, but the guy lives a, a very sheltered, sort of self-enclosed life. Now, Eugene Peterson, for this one, everything was titled like unself-government, unself-this. This one is titled unself-love. The book came out in 1984, I believe, and I think if it had a title today, it might be Unself-Care for this chapter. Um, Self-care is sort of the word that sort of has taken over our world in this sense. Self-love, I think, was more popular as I was growing up, this sort of like, you've got to learn to love yourself, and now it's taken on this, um, you've got to buy some essential oils and take a bubble bath every now and then to make it through life, um, which is fair, um, but can... <laughs> displace some other things if we be, take too much focus on that. But this guy lives this life of, of self-care, of completely sort of bubbled. There's nobody who interrupts him. He sort of is able to sort of go on his life as he pleases. And what happens is, of course, he runs into a kid that throws everything into sort of chaos and his relationship to this child um, draws him out of himself in weird ways um, and calls him into reality and to its depths in some ways, out of sort of the shallow ways in which he was um, floating above the world into its depths and pits in some ways. He, uh, for some reason, he goes to this support group for single parents alone together at one point, uh, where they chant, single parents alone together. Single, um, And you can imagine what type of interaction he's having at that place. Sorry, this I normally don't... Thus ends the sermon. I normally don't talk about movies for that long. The main point is earlier in the movie, he sees somebody singing with their eyes closed. He's like, what type of sap 
does that? Like, what type of person is able to sing with their eyes closed, unselfconsciously knowing that people are staring at them and brought into some adoration? He has disdain for this person at the beginning of the movie. And not to give away the end of the movie, but it's been out for 12 years, um, is at the end of the movie, he's, he's called onto the stage to help um, the boy play a song, I believe, um, by the Fijis, uh, uh, strumming my pain with his fingers, and, uh, you know the song, um, which is like kind of cringy to begin with, that like this is the song that he comes on the stage and finally surrounded by the life that's drawn him out of himself and his shallows. He says, and there I was like a fool, singing with my eyes closed. And that's where he sort of ends that journey of sort of like this resistance to being called into the world. He's found himself as the lover who sings. And so, bringing all that back to the psalm, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. We are invited in to be the lovers that sing to God. Or in the words of, of what Jonathan sang for us in um, Be Thou My Vision, one to be captured by that vision. One to have that be controlling for us. Now most of us are aware that one of the greatest commandments um, as recited by Jesus in I think two of the Gospels is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, these sort of two commandments. And yet, um, for us, love can become a checklist thing. I know that that's supposed to be true. I'm supposed to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, my soul, and mind, and yet I have a life to go on with. Um, and I can be drawn away from that love. Uh, I can be drawn into other paths and other ways of being, um, and often just pragmatically. I mean, I think that's, that's the real hitch there. It's like there are times where I'm drawn into falser loves, lower loves that distort and disdain and, and drag us through um, things in which are, are not good for us. But there are ways in which we can sort of say like, okay, checklist, that's my highest love, and then what are the other ones? Um, and the reason why I bring that up is because the psalm and, and that, that saying, you know, what is this that we sing to? Like to say that, like, I agree that the Lord my God shall be my highest love, we can sort of checkbox, but then the question is, is that what you sing to? Is that the vision that's captured you? And what I would partially say about that is if you think about the vision one, is that that can enable you a whole different way to live your life. I have a vision by which I'm captured by, and then I go about my day. This isn't the same thing as like, am I choosing every moment to love the Lord my God with all my strength? So um, that would be agonizing. Um, that would be difficult. That would be um, the type of uh, self-reflectiveness uh, that probably falls into narcissism and perhaps um, anxiety. You would just be anxious all the time. But to say I have a love or to say I have a vision is something that becomes more concrete and bedrock to our lives. For instance, if you're a parent or married um, or you've been loved by somebody as a parent, um, you know this sort of like, I go forth with that 
It informs how I live and what I do, but it doesn't need to be um, consciously chosen all the time. And I don't, the reason why I'm going against that is because I think it, it's an unsustainable way to live. You know, if you've ever come back from a church retreat and been like, I'm going to consciously choose every minute of my life, um, there's this thing called decision fatigue. Um, if every choice is, is, you know, presented to you in that frame, eventually you're just going to wear out yourself and fall away, fall into collapse. Um, and that's never happened to me, but I know some friends. Um, uh, I know a guy who that happened to. Um, uh, but there's this way in which we can have a higher love that we're called into. Our hearts can be stirred by a noble theme. Um, Wesley, in his conversion, um, says that his heart was strangely warmed, um, and that set his life on a different path. Um, uh, Augustine, um, when he's converted in the garden, says, the, um, the scales from my eyes fell, and I got up full of light. And there's this way in which he didn't say, from then on, I consciously always chose light, but that my being was filled and animated in a new way. And part of this, part of the sermon, is to argue that that's, I think, how love and affections and how desires work. Um, we, modern as we are, try to make it all about choice architecture. But what I'm trying to say is, I think the psalmist is trying to capture, it's about desire. It's about seeing something outside of yourself and having that stir up a noble theme within you. My heart is stirred by a noble theme. Um, and then how are we, we captured by that? Because, um, yeah, what, what's going on in music, um, if we think about songs again, for many people, that's the only place of transcendence that they sort of have that they'll talk about. I mean, I think it's often um, music and sexuality, but we don't talk about sexuality that much, so we talk about music. But people who go to concerts will often talk about the transcendence that was available there. Um, music does weird things to us and how it lifts us out of ourselves. And it brings us into different places. Um, there's a thinker I like who describes going to sort of like a... Um, uh, a punk rock concert and watching it. Um, but he said, even these people listening to like um, nihilistic, destructive music sort of moved about in a way that suggested there was something more beautiful going on. Like, as it was like, destroy everything. Also, our hearts are warmed by being together. Like, um, uh, you know, damn the man, and let's have another round of joy together. Like, you, you can only can maintain so much your your um, self-destructive tendency at a concert, right? You can't quite lock yourself off and, and, and be angry together. You find yourselves in part, and it's part of the reason why I think it's dangerous, too, is that you can incite yourself into mob-like behaviors that, that don't portray that way. Another place this shows up, I think, is sports, right? We, we um, British soccer fans sing more. American sports fans don't sing much. But we do like cheer and go together and we're sort of surrendered to the mob in that way sometimes in our sporting events. Political rallies is another one in which we sort of are surrendered to this thing beyond ourselves. Um, and like I said, that there's, there's something going on there and it's something worth um, 
also wondering about what's going on guardrails wise too is that destructive things can come out of those moments too because it's it's like um when we think something it comes into our heads and we digest it and this that and the other but if we sing it we're part of a group it sort of shortcuts the the way in which it gets into our heart in a different way this is why the psalmist i think is wise to say that i saw something outside of myself but instead of being stirred to get another pint or to uh, as sports championships go go riot downtown or whatever he's stirred by a noble theme He's captured by one whom this, this king, this deference to. It's, it's not, um, we're so great, which would be the sports chant, um, uh, queens, we are the champions playing. It's that there is a king, there is something beyond me. And the psalm is written to a wedding, um, which, like I said, is rare for the psalms. Now, um, we're going to try and balance that the psalm is written to instruct us, to be read, to, to guide us, I think, into positive ways of living and relating to God. The psalm is also a prophecy of Jesus. So what um, Jonathan read to us from the book of Hebrews, um, that this psalm is used early on by the church to say that this is spoken of Jesus. Um, and then the wedding theme, um, which I hope to return to, but the book of Revelation that Michaela read from us, is that the thing in which we are awaiting according to the book of Revelation, is this supper of the Lamb. Or you'll find Paul at times talking about marriage, but he's like, am I talking about Christ in the church or am I talking about marriage? That there's this unity that's found in that. And that's coming back to loves, that I think loves are more, um, I don't think this, sorry. The, the, the large parts of the religious tradition and the Christian tradition most clearly have articulated that our loves are more some of who we are than our choices. Our desires constitute more who we are at bedrock than the things I can confess just out of my mouth. Of course I believe that. Um, and then uh, Kelly was leading a, a woman's book study through um, Brené Brown's book. Uh, yes, Daring Greatly. I should have, with the Teddy Roosevelt quote. Um, Credit belongs to those in the ring who dare greatly. Um, that you would think about the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money more as how you're directing your life. So you might say, my favorite thing is um, fly fishing, but you spend all your money on, on other things, uh, and you could kill two birds with one stone. I, I subscribe to Netflix, so I watch TV, and also I'm spending my money on that, so I'm not really being drawn into what I want to do. I mean, this shows up in all sorts of different ways, but there's this way in which sort of the manifesto of who you are could be one way of summarizing it might be like what do you do with your time and what do you do with your money um, um but this this psalm um points to that future day that wedding day that feast of the lamb that we're waiting for um this is to say uh, charles spurgeon had a funny way of talking about this he said people read this psalm they read it as no jesus which is wrong but then he says what i'm trying to do is cross-eyed i'm reading it both in its context and in um, as a testimony to who Jesus is. And then the, the third way which he recommends is the things spoken of in this psalm can only rightly be spoken of Jesus. Because all other kings fail, all other queens turn away, all other things and generations come to an end. I think the longest serving monarch was 74 years. 
Um, and yet Christ is the only one whose throne lasts forever. As I do, I'm not taking Charles Surgeon's advice, but I think that is important to keep in mind as we go through this, is that there's this way in which this is spoken of as Christ. And so we have this wedding theme that comes throughout it. Um, this is a glorious wedding in which the psalmist's heart is stirred to joy. See, I'm not even, uh, that froze. No, it didn't froze. Yeah, the, my, the back one's froze. So you're wondering why this is up here, um, and I'm not on that screen. Uh, this is from the book of Genesis. Uh, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my mess. She, flesh of my chef, she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is that first sort of wedding scene from the book of Genesis. Um, and, and one of the things worth noting here, which I think is quite beautiful, this is a bit of an aside, is that there was no helper suitable for Adam, and so God made Eve as this helper suitable for Adam, often interpreted as woman is to be a helper to man. Um, what's amazing about that phrase, helper, azer, is like the rest of the time it appears in the Old Testament, it's a reference to God, that God is the helper of Israel that God is the helper in whom we want. And so we have this notion, I think, of looking at helpers as sort of sub or something like that. And yet this is the title which Eve is invited into to be a helper, helpmate for Adam. And yet it is the same title that God is continually for Israel. Um, uh, to use that in a way to denigrate is to, to denigrate what God does for Israel. It's a very weird way in which that's used. But, but, to look at this um, first confession, and this, this helpfully sort of came from Eugene Peterson, and, and it's his way for looking at the kingly half of this psalm and then the, the queenly, is that, is that a word? Uh, queen, queen-centered half of the psalm. Um, I'm looking at you, Kim. Is queenly a word? No, not sure. Um, I don't think it is, but I'm not sure what word I should be using then. Um, uh, but the first part is about adoration. The first thing about being called out of unself-love or unself-care is adoration. Um, one of the commentators he pulled from in that chapter, he says, the ego is never defeated, it just needs to be invited into a larger house. Like, for instance, if, if you're trying to, to sort of work through um, self-centeredness in this sort of way, it's not to say think about yourself more, is to say, be invited into a larger world is the solution for that. And our illusions around that are shattered often, I think, that we can control things, that we can be in charge, that we can sort of self-protect. Um, and one of the helpful ways, rather than trauma, which can lead us out, is through adoration, finding an object of love which is not the self. Um, this is... Uh, Jonathan Haidt has a book called The, the Coddling of the American Mind. Um, and I think this is part of what he's, he's, he's uh, diagnosing in that book is this way in which we've over sort of um, diagnosed people into smaller and smaller segments of their life. And so they become more and more self-centered uh, self and self-registering of all things rather than being invited out into adoration. But the second thing, this is why a man and woman now leaves his husband and mother and are united one uh, to his wife and they become one flesh, is detachment. 
So the first half, we're invited into adoration, but the second movement is detachment to other things that have been. Um, and so we'll walk now um, just briefly through the, the king part of the psalm, talking about adoration, and we'll talk about the, the queen half of the psalm, about um, detachment, and then we'll close with um, the future, I think, that they have together and the future that we have in Christ. Um, the king is described as handsome, well-spoken, heroic, good, glad, one who is victorious in victory, one who orders the world rightly, one who loves justice, one who exercises justice and righteousness in life, one who sort of cares for the order of everything so that everyone is provided for. These are the characteristics of this king. And this king is, like I said, is for us to see Jesus in this king, one who comes in his kingdom and lives in this way. Um, and what we find here in, in describing the king in this way of adoration is we're drawn out of ourselves into something greater. This happens in love. This happens in, in, when our vision is captured by something. Um, we're drawn out of ourselves. The book that we just finished as our school of defiance, The World Beyond Your Head, has this chapter on the eros of attention. And he goes through this uh, famous commencement speech by David Foster Wallace, where he sort of advises that when you're stuck in traffic, choose to imagine the person in front of you has a sick kid in their car, or is having a stressful day, or the person who cut you off is in a hurry to get to a hospital, or this, that, and the other. And he says, if you choose that, then you're going to accomplish something in your life. But the problem, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, choice fatigue begins to set in. And at some point, the 18th time you're cut off, you're like, okay, I give the first nine the benefit of having a sick child, but the last nine, like, you just can't sustain that. And so what he says in the book is that, and he's using uh, different thinkers, Iris Murdoch and others, uh, but this idea in which you need to focus yourself on something else. Don't focus your attention on whether I'm going to get to where I'm going to get to on time, because then you're going to have to keep making exceptions for everybody who gets in your way. Or you could focus on something grander and greater. Only the lover sings. So for instance here, and I find myself, if you've ever tried to cross 82, I live like right there. So if I want to walk longer than a mile, I have to cross 82, which means I'll spend at least 10 to 20 minutes standing at the stoplight waiting for the walk signal. Um, seems like an exaggeration, but um, it feels like it's that long. But I, I could choose to say, you know, it's important that all these people going through are going home to happy families to live prosperous lives, and they're all virtuous. Um, but there's only a, a moderate of time before David drives by, and I'm like, that's not true. Um, sorry, David. Um, he's checking his fantasy football score while driving. Um, or I could um, look to Sopris, um, this beautiful thing that stands over our valley, this mountain, that changes with the seasons. It moves from, from snowless to snowed in. It has colors that change in it. Like for the time that I'm sitting there, I could be aggravated by that cars get the right of way over pedestrians, um, or I could choose to focus on something else. I could attend to something greater than my frustrations in the present. 
What I want to say is that the psalmist, in reflecting on the king, is choosing to attend to this one who is beyond him and is more amazing and is setting the world to rights in a different way. He's not choosing to say, here's the ways I'm frustrated about everything, but here is one whom is beautiful and kingly and will bring about justice in all things. And we can choose to do that, funny enough, with Jesus as well. Um, We can choose to have our attention drawn. John Wesley, again, the Christian is not kept from evil. The Christian is kept from evil by greater attractions to Christ. It's not about the choices, it is to some extent, but it's also that can we be captured in love to something greater? The second half on the bride speaks of detachment. There's this phrase in there that says, forget your people and your father's house, or in the book of Genesis, for we have to leave and we have to cleave to make a new reality. If you think about what a father's house or a mother's house can be, it's this place of protection, of coddling, of fineness, of provision. And what you have to do is forget that to go forward into having a fruitful marriage. Um, One of the chief things that, five things that people will fight about after they get married is the relationship to their in-laws. To leave and then to cleave is a very important thing. I realize it's Thanksgiving week, so congrats. Um, um, You've made your bed now. Um, Lay in it. Uh, To become detached to the things that keep us coddled and locked in. It was fine for you when you were a child to be in this place. But for you to go forth with this kingly one who is external to you, you have to leave behind the childish things. You have to not look for provision in the safe and walled enclosure of the house that kept all evil at bay, but be willing to go out into the world. To be willing to go forth in other ways, to to have this detachment Um, become part of who we are so that we can be led into the new household together. New Testament language, this one reminds me of repentance so much. Um, You are to let go of those things in which you previously were attached to and find yourself brought into this new place with this kingdom with new things to be attached to, with new life bursting at its seams. So the psalm ends, your sons will take the place of your fathers. You can continually come back to the father, the father, the father. And what the king and queen are able to do is to have a new future with children. Your children shall take that place. You will move into a new relationship. In some sense, you will not be in the father's house. You will have one yourself. And then the greater challenge becomes when your children grow up to let them and leave and cleave. Um, Happy holidays. Um, This new future they're invited into together, that's what's um, this your here is, is more masculine in some sense. It's the speaker speaking to the king again. Your, your fathers, um, your sons will take the place of your fathers and you will make princes throughout the land. If we're looking from the New Testament lens as we are invited into the wedding of the face, um, we are those who are invited in to become sons of God because of what Christ has done for us. Then we're invited to become um, people who exercise his vision for life throughout the land. 
So the psalmist ends, I will uh, uh, perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The psalmist, my heart is stirred by a noble theme, becomes witness to this wedding in this way. We, too, as a church, become witnesses to what God is doing in his wedding to the bridegroom, which is the church. Our hearts can be stirred to that noble theme as we see it happening external to us, but participating in it as this is our new life and new kingdom as well. May we find adoration, being captured by the beauty and the goodness of the one who is kingly to us in Jesus may we find detachment from the ways in which we can shelter ourselves, in which we can go towards our own destruction, our own addictions, our own lesser loves, because we've been captured by this one. And may that make fruitfulness in our lives as we become children of God, princes in the word of the Psalms, to exercise that person's authority um, and wisdom and vision for the kingdom throughout the world, not as the kingdom, but as a witness to it. For in our praise and in our singing, we will uh, perpetuate the memory of that king through generations, and the nations will praise forever and ever. Let us pray. Like the psalmist, God, you have invited us to see the mystery of your nuptials between Israel and you, and in today, the church and your Messiah. God, may we be captured by that beauty. May that become our vision in some ways as we await the supper of the Lamb. And as we are drawn out of ourselves through beauty, may too we detach ourselves from the patterns of destruction, or the patterns of safety and hiddenness, or the patterns in which we can hide from the adventure of salvation in which you are calling us into. And may as we move forward with you, may we find fruitfulness in our lives.